The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Hello and welcome to the Engineers Collective. I'm New Civil Engineers Head of Content, Rob Horgan, and joining me to go over the latest news and gossip is our all-star reporter, Catherine Kennedy. Hi, Rob. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Uh, I believe you're joining us from London this month. I am. I have been on a plane, on a train, surrounded by suitcases and boxes and, yeah, all very exciting. Nice to be back and nice to have got on a plane and gone somewhere even if it was a very functional trip yeah I bet hopefully uh hopefully we can get on some some planes for some site visits overseas again soon mm. myself and Catherine will will delve into the news very shortly but just to flag up that later on in the show NCE's features editor Nadine Badu will be taking over and she will be joined by SNC Lavalin Associate Director Zane Elhak who also acts as the Digital Health and Safety and Wellbeing Lead for the Construction Leadership Council, as well as Helen Baumforth, who is the Head of Data Analytics at the Health and Safety Executive. They have a new health and safety initiative underway that I can't wait to hear more about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Yeah, it's a very important topic and, and no doubt it'll be very interesting. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the news. Catherine, what have you been up to in the last uh, month? Yeah, well, an exciting month with some slightly more normal events happening. So just before I left Northern Ireland, I was able to go on a site visit. So that was a nice end to my time working from home home. So yeah, I went to see the Belfast Wastewater Treatment Works. So it's a £10 million project. They're building two new treatment tanks. And it's part of this wider Living With Water programme, which is a sort of integrated plan for drainage and waste management in Belfast so that was nice to get back on site and I got to go up in a crane which was a first so that was fun. Yeah very exciting I've seen that I've seen the pictures on Twitter if you haven't seen them listeners time to uh, yeah start following Catherine on Twitter and you get to see these fantastic site visits. Just for the photo <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was great. Got to see the whole site from very, very high. And yeah, just really nice to go and speak to human beings in person. It was lovely. And then a slightly more virtual side of things was covering the Bridges Conference earlier this month. So lots of, of interesting projects. There was the, the Pooley Bridge, HS2 Bridges, Queen's Ferry Crossing. So it's been an interesting month and yeah, a nice mixture. So all, all good. And what about you, Rob? You had a site visit as well, I think. I, I did have a site visit as well. It's my uh, first site visit in, in around 18 months, actually, which is uh, slightly crazy when you think about how often we were out on site before mm. COVID and COVID restrictions. Yeah. And it was it was quite a biggie to, to reintroduce me to site visits. I was actually up <laughs> at H- HS2's biggest construction site at the, um, the start of the Chilterns Tunnels, and it is enormous, absolutely massive. We had to be ferried around in minibuses from the different sort of parts of the sites and and the sort of scale of the project, it sort of really brought it home. I guess we've been 
sitting at our desks writing about it, not just in the in the COVID pandemic, but you know for the years leading up to construction starting. So uh, it was really quite an experience, I guess, to get out there and you sort of almost glamorize HS2 in your head, I think. But the reality is, you know, it is a construction project. There's this HS2 hotel, as they dub it, for the workers, which is effectively containers stacked on top of one another. The workers are all out in full PPE. I was happened to be there on what is the hottest day of the year so far. So, you know, you really felt for the construction workers. Mm, yeah. You know, it is, it is a construction project as much as we sort of glamorize it and go over the the costs and, and everything, it really brought that home. But yeah, very impressive and good to see HS2, you know, getting on with, with construction. Yeah, I think I saw a selfie of you on site as well on your Twitter. Did that uh, feature at one point? I think it's uh, construction journalism's 101, isn't it? To take a, <laughs> to take a site visit selfie. One for the fans, one for the Twitter fans. <laughs> good to actually see shovels in the ground on HS2 and maybe... Is the next site visit a trip to Old Oak Common at some point? Yeah, surely it has to be. I think I think I actually saw today that the BBC's been there. Grant Shapps gave the go-ahead for, for main works to begin on the West London Superhub this month, or in the last few days, in fact, which which will see the UK's largest ever station box constructed. And that, that will house the, the High Speed 2 platforms uh, it'll also obviously interconnect with crossrail as well as providing an extension onto Heathrow as well so really really important strategic hub not just for the rail network but for London as a whole as obviously the station fits in with the OPDC's housing plans and it's, it's their revised plan the station is actually central to that so yeah good to see that progressing especially with all the uncertainty around Houston and we still don't have a final design for how for Euston Station or or even the tunnels and how that will connect into the rest of the line. Yeah, what do you think about the rest of the line? Will we get a site visit in the north? Well, that that's the hundred billion pound question, isn't it? We're still waiting on the integrated rail plan, aren't we? Yeah. Initially promised at the start of the year, delayed because of the elections, which uh, obviously took place at the start of May. And now the, the rumours I hear is that we're at risk of not seeing the the plan before the summer recess, which would obviously mm. kick it into the autumn or September. Do you call that summer autumn? Government probably still call it summer. Mm. To me, it's the autumn. But um, I guess what's worse is that the longer these delays to the integrated rail plan go on, the, the more the rumours and concerns that start to come out. I think we've spoken on on this podcast before about the potential scaling back of the eastern leg to Leeds, which seems to have leaked out of the integrated rail plans development thus far. But in the last few weeks, we were also starting to see reports that Northern Powerhouse Rail could also be cut back or scaled back, which would obviously be a bit of a reversal to Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda. I'm not quite sure how how that would fit in with his manifesto pledges. I don't think they'll scrap it completely. I think that would be too outrageous. But yeah, perhaps there'll be a, a delaying of it or a, mm. a scaling back in some way or the other. Yeah, it doesn't fill the industry with an awful lot of confidence, does it? No, not at all. It's obviously really difficult to plan. I mean, talking about Northern Powerhouse Rail in particular, they they obviously postponed their submission of their final business case for 
Northern Pals Rail on yeah. on the basis that the integrated rail plan would be published, you know, at least by now. So it's obviously extremely difficult for them to continue planning, seeing they found a, a nine billion pound cost saving in their latest um, board minutes. They they mentioned that. So I don't know if that's just a figure to to mm. try and con- convince government to to give it the backing. We will have to wait and see still on that front. But one uh, other review, which is simultaneously marching forwards, is, of course, the Union Connectivity Review, which I know Catherine is uh, a proud Northern Islander. I know you're you're all over that. What's the what's the latest there? I am. Yes. So the latest latest plans seem to be favouring Wales to Ireland connection instead of the previous proposal, which was to connect Scotland with Northern Ireland. So a retired engineer called Ian Hunt had shared these plans with NCE and he is proposing a combined bridge and tunnel crossing between Dublin and Holyhead, which would include two new Irish Sea islands. So it's really interesting. Um, He thinks the Dublin to Holyhead route is preferable because it offers an advantage of this link with established infrastructure. And the idea suggests dividing the route into three equal lengths. So you would have elevated bridges at each end and they'd be about 40 kilometres long. And then there would be this central 45 kilometre long tunnel section, which would go under the deepest part of of the sea. So another idea to add into the mix there. Mm. Was that a road tunnel or a rail tunnel, that one? It, ooh. Or a mix. I can't remember. I think it might have been a mix. Actually. Either way, it sounds pretty incredible. Yeah. Although, frankly, potentially a bit overly ambitious. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's just the pessimistic journalist in me. One, <laughs> one blocker, of course, if it is a roads tunnel, would be the, the Welsh government's decision to pause all road projects while it reassesses their environmental impact. This is quite a huge announcement, isn't it, Catherine? Yeah, so they have said all new road building projects in Wales are being put on hold, essentially. And yeah, the government is going to conduct a a review. So they've emphasised, obviously, the importance of reducing carbon emissions with Wales aiming to reach net zero by 2050. And yeah, they've said that to achieve that, Wales actually needs to double what has been cut in the last 30 years so that means proposals for various different projects, including the, the D-side red route, a third Anglesey crossing will all be paused. And then there's other projects, though, like the Heads of the Valleys road scheme. Construction work has begun on the, on that project. And if it has begun on projects, it will keep going. But yeah, a really big decision. And they've also said that the, the government it wants to shift money away from new roads to maintaining existing routes and investing in public transport. So it seems like a lot of decisions to be made and a lot of discussion to be had on that. Yes, I think it's, I think it's a pretty huge decision from the Welsh government, actually. I actually think it's quite sensible considering, you know, the run-up to COP26 and all the climate change mm-hmm. changes, really, all the changes in legislation that are coming in and it's happening at quite a pace. So think a brief pause to reflect on, on what the pipeline of work is, is is quite sensible. I mean, if you look in in England, for example, every new road scheme, you know, is facing pretty strong legal opposition on climate grounds. 
if you look at Highways England's major schemes, you've got Lower Thames Crossing, which obviously had to pull its consultation because of the Planning Inspectorate's environmental and construction concerns. They've now revised those and they're going back out to consultation in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. You've also obviously got Silvertown Tunnel, um, which I know you can tell us a bit more about in a second, Catherine, because you've been covering that a bit. Sadiq Khan is under inc- incredible pressure to to review Silvertown Tunnel, but that perhaps is, you know, that's one that's a bit further along. Construction has begun there. And then obviously there's the Stonehenge Tunnel as well, which has uh, been front and centre of an environmental challenge this week. I think you, you've sort of dipped in on all of those over the last few weeks, haven't you, Catherine? Yeah, so just... Today, the Silvertown Tunnel um, in the Mayor's Question Time, Sadiq Khan was um, coming under increasing and continuing pressure to uh, sort of pause and reflect on that scheme in terms of its environmental impact. So that uh, the pressure there is is definitely still uh, ongoing. And then the Stonehenge Tunnel court case. So it was a, or it is a three-day court hearing to look at the planning approval for for that scheme it is happening at the minute and the legal challenge to that has been brought by the campaign group save stonehenge world heritage site so they believe that the proposals will have a detrimental impact on the the uh, stonehenge site and it's yeah it's an interesting one so grant chaps approved the scheme in november and that was actually against the recommendations of the planning officials so then this this court hearing is going to determine whether or not his decision was lawful. So it's three days and, yeah, see what happens. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of interest in the outcome of that case, not just, the, uh, I guess, the impact on the Stonehenge Tunnel, but the impact it will have on Highways England's wider RIS2 plans, which themselves are facing a, a high court hearing, which begins next week. Mm-hmm. So, so, Catherine, I believe you actually had a bit of, bit of trouble with the courts trying to access the the case itself. <laughs> yeah, it was really strange experience actually. Um, so the it's obviously all remote at the minute, and the video link was capped at ninety nine people, so we couldn't get we couldn't get in. And obviously, you you understand that we're all operating differently at the minute, and technology does have hitches sometimes. But you would think by this stage in the world of lockdown and, and remote working there would be a workaround and and you have to be able to get more people than 99 into such a high profile case with so much interest so very strange but yeah very very strange well, yeah more than just strange it's pretty outrageous isn't it mm-hmm. I think that's that's the term sort of media and law professionals have said about your experience that we've spoken to I mean yeah like you say if we were a month or two into the pandemic you'd forgive a technical glitch like that but you know we've we've been covering virtual court cases for over a year now and there's no no excuse for blocking journalists access in the way they've done there let's hope they've sorted it out by the time the verdict's handed down yeah so that we can we can tune into that yeah exactly yeah but um that's enough outrage from me, I guess. And um, I'll <laughs> throw things over to Nadine Badoon and her special guests now to take a look at how the industry can prove its health and safety record. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. 
Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com. Thanks, guys. So joining me now is two very special guests, Zane Ulhak, who is the Associate Director for Atkins, a member of the SNC Lavalin Group, and the Digital Health, Safety and Wellbeing Lead for the Construction Leadership Council, and Helen Barnforth, who is the Head of Data Analytics at the Health and Safety Executive. Zane is a leader for change in the construction and healthcare sectors. He has digitally transformed a business unit of over 3,000 staff and is a key leader of Atkins' global digital programme. Zane's role involves leveraging value from innovation, promoting change and servicing new business opportunities for major infrastructure clients. From defining the future of health and safety through new data sharing principles to helping shape the UK's national digital twin programme, Zane brings together his functional and technical knowledge of engineering, change and data to solve some of the UK's most challenging problems. And Helen provides data analytical expertise across HSC, the wider UK government and the private sector. She has over 18 years of experience of developing and delivering analytical solutions for a range of health and safety issues. Helen has led the development of the Regulatory Intelligence Programme of Work at HSE and sits on the Cross-Government Data Leaders Network. She co-leads the Thomas Ashton Institute Digitisation and Complexity Theme and is the Programme Director for the new Lloyds Register Foundation Discovering Safety Programme. Now, Atkins has been working with HSE on the Discovering Safety Programme, which aims to improve health and safety performance on a global scale, using data and analytical techniques to provide new insight and solutions. Firstly, Zane and Helen, welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Hi, nice to meet you. Thank you. So just to provide a bit of context, in 2020, there were sadly 40 construction fatalities in the UK, which is more than any other sector. In addition, workplace injuries and work-related ill health cost the industry more than £1 billion each year. So with that in mind, can you talk us through some of the issues that the construction industry is facing in relation to health, safety and well-being? Zane, if I come to you first. Yeah, so... So traditionally, some of the things that people might focus on are things like falling from height, use of power tools, etc. They might pick on the key points that, that comes through from industry data around these things. But one of the things that I think, which is actually one of the largest issues the construction industry is facing, is actually the lack of proper data management and the use of data. And the reason for that is you might wonder what's what's the relevance of that to health and safety. It's very much that Without that correct use of data within our industry and a better, under- we, we, we lack an understanding of what the actual problems are. So in 2017, an example of that, any kind of point around the flammability of cladding wouldn't have been considered as pressing a concern as it is nowadays until, of course, Grenfell happened. So it's, it's points like that which come through, where, which we need to consider the actual proper use of data across our sector to understand these problems. So I would say... In a nutshell, it is it is around that. And and Helen, is that what you're also seeing in the HSE? Yes, I mean uh, the construction sector is a high priority for HSE. There's still sadly too many fatalities and injuries in this sector, and our construction division is very proactive in identifying and addressing that high risk activity, and supporting duty holders to improve performance as needs as needed. And that does include sort of how they can use their data better. I mean, we do still have priority areas such as working at heights, exposure to dust, et cetera, of course. But we're also trying to think about different ways that we can help the sector. The construction sector is also very complex. It's quite challenging because it's complex. It has, um, you know, ever-expanding supply chains, widespread use of multiple contractors, diverse range of organisations and structures of organisations from large multinationals to SMEs to small one-man band type organisations. So, you know, it's quite a complex space. 
And innovation is happening in the sector, but it's possibly less than in other sectors. And there's also possibly a perception that regulation could hinder the adoption of new tools, perhaps. So very much at HSE, we're wanting to change that and we're wanting to try and use a data-driven approach ourselves and encourage others to have a data-driven approach. And at the heart of that is the, the vast data archive that HC has access to as well, which provides potential sort of new approach to improving health and safety performance. So, I mean, over the last year and obviously over the course of the, the pandemic, how have you seen kind of COVID impact some of those complexities that you you see in the, the construction industry? Has it, in fact, kind of helped drive that kind of adoption of innovation or has it been the opposite? So I would say that um, COVID as in many areas, has acted as a catalyst for the improvement of processes and uh, inclusion of digital transformation as part of the general day-to-day working atmosphere. What that means very much for the health and safety side is we've we've had to plan a lot more on how we undertake not just the design work, but work on site as well. And better planning usually tends to end up having better health and safety processes and a better understanding of the health and safety areas around a site for example one of the things that of course becomes really important when considering all of these improvements that have been made and it's because we tend to have um, lagging indicators which I guess as a term is saying that if you do something good today you won't see the benefits of it for the next few months or years that's what a lagging indicator is because the health and safety sphere of things is more of a lagging indicator we may not see the value of this till later on but the problem is, is that we we do need to look at a, a way of sustaining this because if COVID is seen as a temporary thing, so the process change that we've had as a result of COVID means it's only a temporary change and we revert back to what we were doing, we're at risk potentially of going back to, to what the original status quo was. And we just need to make sure that we adopt those processes effectively as we move forward. I mean, and with, I can see you nodding away there, Helen. So I do think the construction sector has some particular challenges. So, um, for example, social distancing isn't always possible with many of the activities that they undertake. Um, Some activity takes place outside, but not by no means all activity. And so, you know, obviously there's differences in controlling the spread of virus, whether you're inside or outside. But I think actually some of the the, the things that we have seen is that the new working conditions that we're working under have actually, in some cases, accelerated the adoption of new technologies. So, for example, we are hearing more about um, wearable technology being used to collect data. And we we are looking at ways that we can develop new sort of risk control advice and tools to enable the effective control measures to reduce the transmission of viruses uh, in the construction sector and others going forward. So, I mean, Zane, you touched on this already. Can you talk me through how kind of expertise in areas such as data science can really be used to help drive improvements in health and safety across the industry? So expertise in data science. One of the things to consider is that there's a huge gap in in relation to capability or skills across the sector when it comes to a technology based approach. So when it comes to the asset, when it comes to larger organisations, they're able to invest a lot of money into these types of processes, consider what's the art of the possible. But when it comes to the SMEs, which make up the bulk of our sector, they don't have the time or the, the, the or even the people to be able to address these types of problems. However, one of the ways in which 
data science can look to address some of the issues that we're facing through those individuals or through those groups is lots of sites have free text in relation to the risks that they capture or incidents that they're captured. And natural language processing is a way in which we can start trying to make sense of the information that's provided there, understand the context in which risks or incidents have happened and provide lessons learnt off the back of that. Similarly, um, there's image recognition capability. So you, many people would have seen those uh, videos or images where there's um, a camera and it's got detection points, such as when you're looking at Tesla's vehicle and you can see when it detects certain things. In a similar way, if we're able to use image recognition to try and understand what's happening, what's the context of that image, and potentially what's unsafe, we can put the power of some of some really core and simple concepts into the hands of the SME contractors where they don't need, or contractors or consultants for that matter, and the domestic clients, where they don't need to have this data science capability but they can definitely benefit from it. So it's, I think the expertise around data science could be used to make it better for the whole industry rather than exclusively for the tier ones. I think there's a sort of a cultural change that's happening as well because the importance of data and its potential to improve outcomes is just being recognised much more widely around government and obviously into industry. Um, it's reflected in the government's grand challenges in the new national data strategy, for example, and we know that businesses are collecting and using data more. And as an engaged regulator, HSE is committed to um, playing a, a positive role in that and helping the UK industry address its challenges and opportunities as, as the world of work changes. So I think for, in the data context, it means using our own data as a regulator in innovative ways to improve health and safety performance, but also understanding how we can help industry do the same and working together to do that. But it's that, that shift in um, data culture, I think, is happening. Can you give me an idea, Helen, of some of those innovative ways that you're using that data within HSE? Yeah, well, we've been collecting data as the, the regulator for many, many years, over 45 years. And, and we've got quite a, a unique sort of insight into the data that we've collected. We've got sort of scientific experts to be able to use that data in different ways. And we, we have got that wealth of incident and accident information that we've collected. And when we combine that with data, we can you know have a really powerful source. So we've been looking at how we can we can use our data to gain greater insight for our own regulatory activity. And that includes understanding how we can unlock the data that's within our unstructured data, as well as the structured data that we have. So we have got a programme of work looking at creating a knowledge library and text mining tools to be able to unlock the unstructured information and combine it with our structured data. So that's one of the key things that we're doing internally to help us understand the insights that we can get from our data and working on that as a regulator and then also helping industry and understand what they can do with their data. And so just in terms of the, the wider industry, obviously, Zane, you mentioned some of the, the, the challenges for especially uh, SMEs when it comes to, say, resources and, and the difficulties in adopting some of these data-led approaches. Are there any other barriers to the uptake of a, a more data-led approach? Yes, yeah, so um, that's a great question. One of the things that we're looking at in the construct, well, uh, the main thing that we're looking at around the Construction Leadership Council in relation to digital health, safety and well-being is our top three priorities, which is structuring data, sharing data and using data. Um, they're kept fairly simplistic on purpose because we don't want to try and confuse a lot of people. But it's very much saying that 
as an industry, there's quite, a, you know, we can talk about image recognition and NLP like I'd spoken about earlier, but without actually providing a proper structure to how we're managing our data and using the correct vehicles from commercial legal terms as well as technical terms on how to share that data amongst the sector, we would struggle to derive any kind of insight of any value. We have to first figure out ways in which we'd want to structure it and how we'd want to share it. So I'd say that those are two really strong issues that we'd need to consider. And um, there are groups such as the Discovering Safety Programme, which look at talking about how we could share data for the industry, as well as looking at structuring the data as well. And the BIM for Health and Safety Group, which uh, a colleague of ours, Gordon Crick, leads, are also looking very much at structuring data. So there, they are definite barriers, but there is being some work done to try and address those as well, which is which is promising. Lovely. I mean, so turning to the, the Discovering Safety Programme, Helen, can you tell us a bit more about the programme and, you know, when and why was it formed? Yes. Um, so Discovering Safety is aiming to improve health and safety performance using data and analytical techniques to provide new insight. It's a five-year programme and it's been funded by the Lawyers Register Foundation. So it started in 2018 and to date, um, Discovering Safety has developed and is delivering a, a programme of work with partners based on extracting insights from HSE's data, but also other organisations' data as well, to feed into a range of industry-endorsed use cases and proof-of-concept applications. We've got a number of things that we're trialling with industry, and, and outputs have really been focused on unlocking data to facilitate sharing through the use of desensitisation tools, access to safety data to support operational efficiency, and creating safety critical insights to improve performance. So we've been running for about three years and we've got an established and active community of stakeholders. We've got people trialing the tools that we're developing and we've got a website and social media outlets and events planned so people can find out more about what the programme's doing. And so what is HSE's role as part of the programme? So HSE is delivering the programme um, with a range of partners from academia, industry and technology startups. So we're working with the University of Manchester, we're working with Atkins, we're working with a company called Ohalo, we're working with Wood Group, but we're collaborating together to work with industry to achieve the goals of discovering safety. And and so Zane, what is what is Atkins' role on the programme? So as, as Helen mentioned, we're we're a partner in the programme and um we're we're working across the programme with HSE. Our main focus are is around um two particular areas. One is the risk library project which aims to collate risk and treatment data from across the industry and find out ways in which we can share lessons learned um, simply at this stage, but then hopefully in the future by being able to connect them to incidents, also finding a structured way in which you can prioritise treatments against incidents and against risks as well. We're, and, and on that particular project, I'm, I'm helping, uh, as I mentioned the, the name before, Gordon Crick, uh, another colleague, um, lead on that as well as Atkins and uh, and a part of them Faithful and Gould um, bringing in some projects to help support on that. Similarly we're also undertaking another piece of work with um, with HSE around looking at the opportunity for data sharing from a health and safety perspective. We're initially writing a report and then seeing seeing where we go from there. 
And and so can you give me a bit more of an idea in terms of, you know, how this insight will be shared across the industry? I understand that's a lot of the work you're doing now about how you kind of begin to start sharing data more widely across the industry. You know, how will these resources that you're currently working on, how will they be kind of available for, for businesses across the construction industry? Okay, um, so we've got a number of proof of concepts that we're trialling at the moment with our industry partners. And once um, we've completed those, those products or um, outputs will be available for wider use. We've got a website where people can find out more and get engaged. We've got a community practice area on there. We're looking for industry to actively um, get engaged with us and potentially share data into the programme, trial some of the, the proof of concepts tools that we're developing with us. We're also hoping that we will be able to invite industry to respond with new challenges. So as the world of work changes and new issues come up, if industry comes to us with challenges that they're facing, we can attempt to adopt a data-driven approach with the data archive that we've got and the experience that we've learned and the analytical tools that we've developed to help address those challenges that are new and coming in to the the, um, sector. Just to add on to Helen's point, um, particularly around the risk library work as well, Whilst we're currently in a closed pilot phase at the moment, um, the website Helen mentioned, we're looking to bring more people in through that to help collaborate around this project. So it will be opened up into more of a members area slash community of practice endeavour in which we can open it up to wider groups to be able to collaborate around this and benefit from the the lessons that have been learnt as well as generate more lessons learnt. So the the programme is growing. And uh... Are there specific companies that you're looking to have involvement from or is it anyone across the industry who's welcome to to get involved? So at the moment we're focusing on the construction sector and within that sector at the moment we have, um, as Zane's explained, control, uh, closed pilots with groups of about 15 different organisations are trialling the, the products with us. But then the intention is that the, the products and the outputs will be opened up to the construction sector. And we, we hope they will be of value and interest to you know as many as possible. Um, another aspiration is, that we have is that we want to take what we've done in one sector and be able to then sort of adapt it and take it to other sectors as well. So discovering safety isn't just about the construction sector. It's very much about trying to look across different sectors and move to that wider reach as we get further into the programme. We also have an international aspiration, so it's not just UK focused, even though as a regulator, obviously HSC is focused on the on Great Britain. I mean, in terms of the UK construction industry, uh, are there any areas, I mean, we've spoken a lot about some of the challenges facing the industry in terms of health, safety and well-being. Are, are there specific areas where you can see that UK construction is really getting it right? Do you have kind of some examples of like real best practice across the industry? Um, So one of the things that I think we can talk about when it comes to health, safety and well-being is that the standards around information management in some regard have originated, let's say, and I'm sure there are others in other countries as well, but there's quite a strong gathering around health and safety data and how you'd manage it within the construction sector through the standards that have been developed. So there's PAS 1192 Part 6. We've got a strong group which is called the BIM for Health and Safety group that talks around some key issues and and topics and they have been pushing forward for the industry um, ways in which we can take forward new ways of adoption on improving our processes. There are also other groups that have uh, been spun out of um, collective endeavours. So there there is a group, in fact, not was, there is a group that's uh, known by the term of safety base that came together through I3P funding, 
which is a collection of clients, consultants and contractors around how do we visualise our risk data more effectively in our projects and manage them in more of a data-driven approach. And these have all come through by people within the sector wanting to improve how we work together. And I think these are quite, these not only show best practice within the UK, but demonstrate from an international perspective that we're really leading the charge on this. You mentioned before the idea of, you know, the Discovering Safety programme. Obviously, the focus is currently on the construction industry, but hopefully, you know, in the years ahead, those lessons learned within the construction industry can hopefully be shared with, you know, sectors, wider sectors and potentially internationally. Are there potentially lessons that the UK construction industry can take from other sectors and perhaps from other countries and what's happening internationally? So, well, I can, I can just come in here, here quickly. So, yes, I do think there are definitely learnings from other sectors that we could we could bring in to the construction sector. And that actually is the aspiration of the Discovering Safety Programme. So we know in the process safety sector, they've had many years of sort of very, very robust risk assessments and, um, you know, a real, I suppose, detail on the data that they're collecting and some of the the learning and the experience from that sector could be of relevance and interest to the construction sector. I know there are different challenges in different sectors but there is also sort of learning that could be could be transferred so it's very much an aspiration of discovering safety to share that across different sectors. Zane you've probably got more experience of actual hands-on applications. There are different different things happening across the across the world there's um, some work being done out in hong kong from from various contractors mainly mainly gammon who are demonstrating capability in the space of of using new health and safety techniques so the thing i mentioned around safety base that was pushed via 3d repo uh, which is a, um, a a software vendor is being launched out in hong kong with gammon to work effectively on how they can improve health and safety processes during construction I think there's quite a few links online. It was released a few few weeks ago, but they've been doing, um, in fact, maybe last week, but they've been doing some work with them for some time now. And I know that there's uh, initiatives across Australia, but one of the things that actually will perhaps help surface these points is um, hot off the press, ISO 19650 Part 6 has been approved globally as moving forward as a standard that is in development now. And I will be the technical author of that. And so I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to speak to colleagues internationally on not only learning what their processes are and finding a global way in which we can approach this, but of course, at the same time, understanding what can be learnt from them and making sure that's incorporated within the standard or at least within the way that we work within our own areas. So I find that as a good opportunity to do exactly what you've asked, which is to learn from these other groups, which definitely are doing very much within this space as well, because health and safety is a it's a key priority for any for any sector, but also any country. So, I mean, just looking ahead, how do you hope the industry's approach to health, safety, and well-being will evolve in the next five to ten years? And obviously, I think Zane coming to you first in terms of the work that you're doing around the standard. You know, how how do you hope that that will will impact the industry moving forward? So, within the next three years, we'll hopefully have that standard prepared and ready. Um, we're hoping that, of course, in the background as well, there's things like the Discovering Safety Programme. There are other things that will act as a catalyst to help move things along in, in, other, in other areas as well. And so where would we be in the next five to 10 years? I would hope that we're in a position where we understand what data is available. We have a structure, at least within the UK, 
where we have a position where industry understands the value of its data being better shared than kept separate and it's in a position to find the problems that it has address those collectively and enable groups such as the HSE to provide the relevant guidance in order to support the industry. We have, as you mentioned at the start, over 1 billion costs to the UK um, in relation to health and safety. We need to bring that number down because that number is directly tied to fatalities, uh, well, fatal and non-fatal injuries. And and that alone is, is it's horrible to know there's even one person who's died because of inadequacies within our sector that number should be zero. So I'm hoping that we can move towards a direction in which that becomes possible. So of course, as the questions you've asked around data science and all these things, embedding these new ways of working to upskill, create better opportunities for the SMEs and the tier ones and ev basically everyone would, would be fantastic. And I think it's definitely something we can achieve. Yeah, I mean, I would echo that obviously. Um trying to get to a position where fatalities and injuries are as low as reasonably practical is very much, you know, an aspiration of, of HSC as the regulator. But I think for me, it's also about um, sort of the adoption of technology becoming routine and um, a much better understanding of how technology and the approaches to data can be used to provide new insight. So, for example, thinking about wearables for real-time monitoring, dynamic risk assessment use, that type of thing. So you can make interventions as, as things are happening. There's opportunities to sort of use technology, video analytics, for example, to spot bad practice and dangerous behaviour and make interventions, you know, there and then. And also sort of different ways of training people. So, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, being able to use those tools to be able to help people really sort of understand the risks and we know that safety by design, for example, is also becoming more important and that absolutely links with the net zero goals, for example. And there's, there's probably something we, we should also think about is composite indicators of health and safety and well-being as well. So we have been talking about health and safety, but well-being is a, is a big part of that. And I think that's something to strive for over that time period as well. That's great. I mean, it's such an important topic, but unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you both for joining us. That concludes another episode of the Engineers Collective. Thank you all for listening in, and I hope you can join us again soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com.